0: Tim, thanks. I, I grew up singing that song, but until this morning, I didn't know what thraldom was. So that's good. Yeah. Okay. Now we know. It's an educational morning. All right. Uh, let's continue at being uh, educated in the Word of God and see uh, as it transforms us. Second Chronicles chapter 29 is where we're going to start this morning. 2 Chronicles 29, then we'll be moving into the book of Isaiah chapter 36 shortly after that. Right, but I want to begin by giving you an illustration. Uh, years ago in... In Europe, in the mental institutions, they had some uh, kind of uh, crude ways of testing if people were ready, patients were ready to leave the institution and go back out and reintegrate into society. And one of the things that they would do is they would go into the janitor's closet and they would turn on the water, they'd put the plug in and let the water begin to fill up, and then they would uh, hand the patient a mop and put him or her into the closet. And so, you know, the water's filling up and it begins to overflow. And if the patient was able to figure out rather than just continuously mopping and mopping and mopping no i need to i need to turn the water off and pull the plug then they would be released and if they couldn't figure that out then they'd have to stay in the institution a little while longer right until they could figure out how to get to the root of the matter what really matters what's really going on here and you know it's a crude illustration but i thought you know sometimes that that's how i feel like even this morning i just i felt very distracted I came in, I always come in a little bit early, and I'm, I'm beginning to think through the message, but I'm just having a really difficult time focusing. What, what's, what's most important in this moment? And I've discovered in, uh, in all of my life, but particularly in my spiritual life, sometimes I just get distracted by so many things that are happening all around me. And I forget that really the, the fundamental issue, the root of the matter, in my relationship with God is simply trust. Right? Do I trust God? Do I trust him all the time, right? Not just for a moment, but moment by moment and then week after week, month after month, for a lifetime. Can I trust God like that? Do I do I trust that he is good, that he's paying attention to what's going on in my life, that he's powerful and able to move and change and intervene in my life? Do I trust God, right? Our relationship started with trust and it continues with trust. We we trust that God's promise that Jesus actually died on the cross to pay the debt of our sins and that he was raised from the dead gives us the guarantee that we will have eternal life, right? Because I don't, I don't possess eternal life right now. I'm still living in this mortal body, but it's, made a, it's a promise. And do I trust God that he will fulfill that? Well, that's how my relationship with God begins. That's also how it continues. Whether I'm in seasons of plenty or want, whether I'm really enjoying blessings from God physically and materially or whether I'm really struggling, I'm in trials and tribulations and sufferings, do I trust God? And if I'm honest, I'm, I'm a mixed bag. Right? There are seasons in my life where I'm really dialed in, and I'm, I am deeply trusting God. And then seasons where I'm really struggling and I'm not. Or there are, there are areas of my life where I'm able to trust, and areas where, mm, not so much. I'm, I'm a mixed bag, if I'm honest. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at another character in the Bible. Uh, He really was a mixed bag. But there are lessons that he learned about trust and tests of his trust that God put him through that I think are really instructive for us as we continue on this journey of learning to trust God at all times and in all circumstances. So we're going to be looking uh, actually at Hezekiah this morning from 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and then later in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39. But what I'd like to do is uh, first... Uh, set this uh, in uh, the historical background a little bit we 're going to back up just a, a, a little bit into the life of hezekiah 's father Ahaz Ahaz was the king before Hezekiah, and uh, he was uh, threatened. Right? He lived in very tenuous times. You recall that Hezekiah and ahaz 's father both ruled during the time what 's known as the divided monarchy or the divided kingdom right. Uh, First king was Saul, and then Saul was replaced by David, and David's son Solomon, and Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was a young foolish man, and because of his unwillingness to listen to wisdom, the kingdom split, and so you had two kingdoms within the nation of Israel, two nations. The northern kingdom, biblically, was often called Israel, and sometimes it's not really clear. You have to look in the context. Is Israel referring to the entire nation, or just that northern kingdom, In the context we're looking at this morning, it's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. So Israel as a nation was divided in two, Israel and Judah. Uh, Ahaz governed the southern kingdom of Judah. And in that realm of the world, at that point in time, Assyria was the greatest and most powerful nation. They were wiping out nations all around them. And they were threatening Syria, whose capital was Damascus, And Damascus and Israel, whose capital was Samaria. And so Syria and Israel said, we don't want an enemy to our south who could flank us. So they tried to get Judah to join forces with them. And uh, Ahaz and Judah said, no, we're not going to join your alliance. So Syria and Israel uh, threatened to attack Judah. And King Ahaz was tested. Would he turn to the Lord and trust the Lord for deliverance against Syria and Israel? Or would he come up with his own plan? That story is told in Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah pulls him aside and he says, look, ask the Lord for a sign. He wants to deliver you. And he says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. The reason he didn't ask for a sign is because he had other plans. His plan was to trust in his enemy's enemy, and he made an alliance with Assyria against Syria and Israel. And so what happened was the Assyrians did come in, they wiped out Syria and they wiped out Israel, but then they came right to the gates of Judah itself and they were threatening Judah. And so Ahaz had to basically uh, pillage the temple and pillage the royal treasury and give all kinds of tribute to the Assyrians to keep his nation from being destroyed. And the Assyrians actually came in and they, they brought idolatrous worship into the temple, which Ahaz was more than willing to submit to because he was an idolatrous man. And so it was a really dark season for the nation of Judah, the southern or the northern kingdom has now been wiped out by Assyria, and the people have been scattered. Some remain in the land, but it's a very dark time. Now, into that realm, uh, his son Hezekiah steps in, and Hezekiah was actually an excellent king. There, there were no good kings in the north in Israel. None, at all, whatsoever. All were idolatrous. In the south, there were a few good kings, and Hezekiah was one of those. So I want you to read with me in chapter 29 of Second Chronicles, beginning in verse 1. It says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he he repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Then he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. First year of his reign, first month, as soon as he gets in, the first thing that he does is he cleanses the temple and he reinstitutes worship. He even reinstituted the Passover and he sent emissaries into the north, in, to those Jews who were still remaining in the land. He says, come back to Jerusalem. Come back and worship with us for the Passover. He, 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 he shra- shatters all of the, the idols that are on the high places around. And, and, and it's just this incredible time of revival. Listen to what it says here in verse 29. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and they worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and they bowed down and they worshipped. Verse 36, then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what the Lord God had prepared for the people because the thing had come about suddenly. First year, first month, boom, just like that. Hezekiah turns to the Lord, and there is revival in the land. I mean, it's an incredible period of revival and change and repentance in the life of the nation. But then Hezekiah is tested. 701 BC, the Assyrians again threaten Judah. They threaten Judah, and they begin marching through their nation, and Hezekiah sends tribute. He tries to buy them off. And he sends his wealth to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria says, well, you know, that's just not good enough. That's not, not, it's not good enough. Uh, you will become a subjugated nation to me. And he begins conquering city after city after city. And he's marching all the way to the very gates of Jerusalem. And now Hezekiah is faced with the same test that his father Ahaz was tested with. Will he give in to His fears, will he try to come up with his own plan, or will he turn to the Lord? And so what he did is he turned to Egypt. And he didn't turn to the Lord. He turned to the only only other superpower that existed at that point in time in uh, the Middle East... And he trusted in an alliance with Egypt to deliver him. And the Lord sent him a warning. He said, you know what? Egypt can't deliver you. Egypt is going to be like this, this broken reed. And if you fall on it, it will just pierce through your hand. Egypt cannot deliver you. And sure enough, the Egyptians were preparing for battle themselves against the Assyrians. They couldn't deliver. And so, so now uh, Hezekiah has, has enemies right at his very gate. Will he now trust in the Lord. And he has faced actually, I would say, with, with three tests in his life, uh, three tests of trust, so to speak, that we face as well. The first one that we're going to look at is this Do we trust God in times of fear? Do we trust God in times of fear when, when it feels like the enemies are, are right at the gate? I'd like you to turn with me now to Isaiah chapter thirty six, verse one, and let's look at this test in the life of Hezekiah. Isaiah chapter thirty six and verse one. We're now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, and Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Verse 13. Then Rabshakeh stood, and he cried with a loud voice in Judean, or in Hebrew, and he said, hear the words of the king, of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and I take you away to a land like your own. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? So he sends his emissary, Rabshake, which it's probably a title, it's the commander of his army, and he says, you know, just come out and make peace with me, and I'll just, you'll eat here, uh, you know, under your own fig tree, and enjoy your own grapes, drink your own water for a little while, and then I'll just take you away to a nice land, it's a pleasant land, this would be great, you won't even think about your own land any longer, which is an absolute and utter and complete lie, because the king of Assyria was brutal. Right. This was the most brutal nation I think that history had known up until this point in time. There are still these murals made of stone that show the Assyrians dragging away their opponents with hooks in their mouth and hooks in their nose. So it's not all that it seems to be. And Hezekiah now is he's living in fear for his life, the life of his family, the life of his nation. How is he going to respond when he realizes there is no other help? There's, there's no help coming from Egypt I either surrender and, and die, I give in to this enemy, or I turn to the Lord. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. So when King Hezekiah heard of it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. What he means by that metaphor is, the alliance has crumbled. My my plan has failed. My ingenuity has come to nothing. There is not a political solution. Verse 4, perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Isaiah, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Isaiah, Isaiah pray for us. And what happened next is actually the Assyrian army, uh, they departed and they went to another city to take up the battle, but Rabshakeh sent another threat. Verse 10, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you get spared? (laughs) Surrender and become slaves, or I will starve you to death. His life is literally threatened. And where does he turn? Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, that is literally, O Lord who commands the armies, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see." And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. But now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. See, it appears at this moment, finally, that Hezekiah realizes, you know, this isn't just about us. This is about the name and the reputation of God among all of the nations. So, so he turns in brokenness and repentance with sackcloth and ashes pouring out upon his head, realizing my strategy failed, I pursued the wrong way, but God, now I realize you alone can deliver. And, and Father, I'm begging you to deliver. Why? Because your reputation is at stake. And so what does the Lord do on his behalf to turn back and look in verse five. It says the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall, you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Verse twenty one. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah again, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you, that is, Assyria has despised you and mocked you, Jerusalem, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached, Assyria, and whom have you blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes, but against the Holy One of Israel? This is, ultimately, Hezekiah understands it's a spiritual battle. It's not just physical. It's not just physical. And so God makes a promise to him. He says, you know what? They're not even going to fire an arrow against you. They're not going to raise a siege wall against you. They're not going to starve you out. They're not even going to get here. Instead, the angel of the Lord swept through the camp of the Assyrians in one night and wiped out 185,000 soldiers. So you know what he did? He packed up and he went home. He went home with his tail between his legs. And 20 years later, he's in the house of his own God, and he's praying. And two of his sons rise up and they assassinate him. He's dead. He never touched Israel. Where do you go when you're afraid? What do you fear? Maybe you're not fearing anything this morning, but we do. We all struggle at moments with fear. It may be physical. It may be financial. It might be relational. It might be spiritual. It might be that great enemy that's knocking at your gate, which is death. It's a fearful thing. Where do you turn when you are afraid? Remember when my kids were little, um, sometimes they would call to me. They'd call out and they'd say, Dad, 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 you've got to come in my room. I, I think there's something in the closet. <laughs> if you're a parent, you remember this. It happens, I think, to every, every kid. God, could you just, Dad, could you just check, check in the closet, make sure there's nothing? In it. So, you know, I'd turn, on, I'd turn on the lights and I'd open up the doors and I'd look all around and say, yeah, see, I don't think there's, there's nothing in here, right? I think we're all, we're all safe. And would close up the closet door, I'd turn off the lights, start to leave, and say, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I know there's nothing in there, but could you just stay, right? Could you just stay, Monster Slayer, Dad? Yeah, I got it, right? Every monster I've ever fought, I've defeated. They were comforted just because I was there. What's funny is even now sometimes my wife will say, I think I heard something somewhere in the house. I'm like, I got this. You know, I get out of bed. <laughs> King of my castle. I'll manage this problem. Right? Just the, the presence. And what Hezekiah is reminded is if he is with the Lord, he's as safe as he can possibly be. Right? God will deliver. Even when that greatest enemy is threatening at the gates, which is death. Right? We, we may suffer in this lifetime, But the thing, in a sense, that causes us greatest fear is death, which is rooted in sin. But Jesus has conquered it. He's crushed it. So people can persecute us. They can come after us. We can suffer. But in the end, we know that we are with God forever. We are safe because we trust. Right? We trust in the promises of God. So Hezekiah does well. First test. Fails and then passes, right? turns to Egypt, but then he figures it out, and he trusts in the Lord in times of fear. Second, do we trust God in times of affliction? Look at chapter 38 with me and now verse 1. It says, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and you shall not live. Right? If a prophet knocks on the door, we talked about this a while back, just don't answer the door. If the prophet shows up and he's got something to tell you, it's, it's often spooky, it's scary, it's dangerous. Well, Isaiah shows up and he says, put your house in order because your, your runway is about out. Right? You are, you're, you're done. The, the other test was against, in a sense, the entire nation, but now it's very personal. It's just Hezekiah. Hezekiah, your days are numbered. And he considers himself really in the prime of his life. And it's over. Where, where do you turn? I mean, maybe you haven't reached that point, but perhaps you have had moments where you realize how physically vulnerable we are. I, I had some health issues a few years ago, and it's just man, just like that. I thought, man, I'm really strong, right? I'm monster slayer. I, nothing can hit me. And then I began to realize how tenuous life is, and how fragile my life is. In fact, there's a, a couple of weeks back, I said something to my kids about. Um, middle age, and, and they both kind of laughed for a second. I go, what are you laughing at? They go, well, Dad, unless you're planning on being 106, you're not middle age right? You're, you're on the downslope. We don't call to have you kill our monsters anymore, right? You're, you're sliding. And that's a frightening thing. And here Hezekiah is. He, he doesn't even have control over his physical health. Where will he turn? Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked with you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I, I love that prayer because it's just so raw and so honest. It says, God, I, I don't want this to be over. I want more days upon the earth. And in fact, after he recovers, he writes a poem about how he was feeling when he was ill. You read it with me down here in verse ten. He says, I said, in the middle of my life, right in the prime, I'm to enter the gates of Sheol, I'm to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. So he has this moment of clarity. Everyone in his day would go to Sheol. Right? The righteous and the unrighteous would go to the grave or the place of the dead. And We understand from Jesus' teaching that there were actually, in a sense, two parts of Sheol. There was a paradise, which was the place for the righteous. And the other was just called Sheol, all part of Sheol, the land of the dead. But once you leave this earth, you no longer have an opportunity to praise God and to praise God in front of others and to point them to the Lord. And so David would would cry out many times in his psalms, Lord, Extend my years. Don't take me down yet to the grave. Why? Because I want to declare your praises to the generation that is yet to come. Lord, extend my life so that I can do good on the land and bring honor and glory to you. In other words, David had that moment of clarity, and Hezekiah has this moment of clarity, which we often have when we are physically struck, that life is in fact short and we better use it wisely. If we only have a few breaths on this earth, what do we actually live for? We live for the glory of God and for the good of others. And the other things that we do, that we chase after, that we idolize, those things are just a waste. They don't profit anything. And so Hezekiah has this moment of clarity, and he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears his prayer. Verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. And so uh, Hezekiah is healed. In fact, we're told in verse 21 that Isaiah uh, had them put a cake of figs and apply it to his boil. So he's got some kind of infection. I, it's you know, modern medicine at that time. i choose an antibiotic. But it works. Right? And he gets 15 more years upon the earth. And God says, not only that, I want to give you a sign that shows you how incredibly powerful I am. Verse 7. This will be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz to go back up ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. In other words, God somehow tweaked the solar system and turned things back. Hezekiah, do you want to know how incredibly powerful I am? The sun and the moon and the stars and the earth are all in my hands. He rescues him and he delivers him in response to his prayer. This is a, it's really an amazing story. It's um, one of the most dramatic miracles in a sense, not the healing of the boil itself, but the the turning back of the sun that happens in all of the Bible. So Hezekiah, uh, he passes again the test. He turns to the Lord. And he's not angry, but he's longing for years on the earth. He turns to the Lord for his deliverance. But his story doesn't end there. There's a third test. Third test is this, affirmation and affluence. Do we trust God when things are actually going well? So the third test is a very different test. It's not enemies at the gate. It's not affliction in his own body. It's not suffering. It's not a difficulty. It's a... Uh, in a sense, a blessing. He's, he's safe, he's secure, he's protected, he's healed, he's well. Things are going incredibly well. And it's the test of comfort. Chapter 39, in verse 1. It says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Well, how had he heard? Well, I, I'm, I'm just surmising but if the sun turned backwards, I think everyone around the world would have said, Well, what, what was that? What just happened? Well, the story begins to spread. That was a sign that was given to Hezekiah. He was deathly ill, and God healed him and gave him a promise that he'd have 15 more years to his life. And in the process of that, God also, the Lord of, of Israel, the, the God of Israel, uh, gave him the sign that he turned the, the sun back 10 steps. And the king of Babylon, who is now a a rising, emerging power, says, I need to send a present. Really natural, normal thing to do. One king would send another king a present when there's a victory or his health is recovered or he has a child or something like that. He sends a present. Now, there's probably an ulterior motive because as he's rising to power, he's looking for allies. And he's catching Hezekiah in a sense at a pretty vulnerable time. He's just recovered his health and things are well, and there's peace and prosperity in his land. And so it's a new test that comes upon him. Verse 2, it says, Hezekiah was pleased, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil, and his whole armory, and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. He's knocking on the door again. He said to him, what did these men say, and from where have they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Good idea? No, nah, was a really, really bad idea. In fact, if we turn back to Second Chronicles, we see what was actually going on in Hezekiah's heart at that point in time. It says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. That's the story we just looked at. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. God healed him. God extended his years on the earth, 15. God gave him a sign. He turned back the sun. And Hezekiah didn't even say thanks, because his heart was proud. So now, these emissaries come from Babylon, right? Important people are showing up at his door, and it's the perfect opportunity for him to say, Would you like to know the Lord, my God, who can turn back the sun? Instead, he says, you want to know what a great ally I can be to you? Look at all of my wealth. Look at all of my treasuries. Look at how incredibly great I am. So Isaiah speaks again. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands armies. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon and nothing will be left to you. That is, if you wanted to show them all of that, now you're just going to have to give it all away. They're going to take it. Some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. All that you have will be uh, taken away. And notice where his heart is. It says, then the king, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, well, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought to himself, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Trissy loves uh, Hezekiah because he really is a great, great king. And she goes, well, you know, but uh, do you have to tell that story too? (laughs) We had this conversation. Yeah, That's part of it because we're all kind of a mixed bag. At the end of his life, he's proud. And what's he thinking about? Just himself. Right, himself, his own experience. He's not even thinking about the generations that will come and all the wealth that's going to be taken away. But it's not going to be taken away from me, so I'm not going to worry about it. This is such a sad story because he really has done very well. restores the the worship of the Lord God in Israel. He turns finally and trusts in the Lord for his deliverance. And the Assyrian uh, army is wiped out. In his sickness he turns and he begs the Lord for life and God gives him a sign. There are all these great stories. But then it's the test of comfort and affluence and the affirmation of the world that trips him up because his guard is down. In my opinion, church, I think that this is probably the greatest risk that we face as a church, because we live in a, a comfortable place. It is easy to be a Christian here in the Bible Belt, as compared with the rest of the world. It is an easy place to be a Christian. We get, uh, you know, yeah, is there some persecution at work and that kind of yeah, there's some, but there's also a fair amount of affirmation, and there can even be praise and. Political candidates will even put on there, this is my church membership, right? That's a normal kind of thing. You know, that's not normal in most of the rest of the world. And it's not normal if you look at the history of the people of God throughout all of time. Normally, the people of God are minority and persecuted. But now we are living in relative affluence compared to the rest of the world and in relative comfort And we have great freedoms for our faith as we're celebrating even on Memorial Day. People have died, so we worship freely and we proclaim God's word freely. And no one's knocking at the doors or threatening us, are they? That's a risky place to be. I have a friend who is a house church pastor in a closed country. Uh, And every time they gather to worship, they're at risk. He, He has been taken in many times by the authorities and questioned. And threatened with jail, his son was not able to get into the school that he needed to get into because he's a pastor and people know about it. He has pastor friends who are in prison now, separated from their family for years and even decades. And One time he said to me directly, very explicitly, he said, Brian, don't pray that our persecution ends. I was like, come again? That's all I've been praying for you. So said, don't pray that. Because we realize when we're persecuted that it keeps us sharp. Every day we have to count the cost of following Jesus. Every day we have to remember that all that we have and all that we are belongs to him. We have a short time on earth, and what are we here for? For the glory of Jesus Christ proclaiming his name so that people can know him and turn out of this broken, rebellious system. So he says, sometimes, yes, I get discouraged and I get fearful, but don't pray that it ends because it keeps us focused and sharp on our mission in this world. And I wonder, church, if persecution came down upon us, would we be ready for that? Or have we grown so comfortable that we're taken captive? Are we ready for that? Uh, This uh, last week, uh, Chris McGuffey and Ryan Pale and I went up to Boston for three days, just a quick trip up and back to meet with church planners and some different parachurch ministries, because we're always exploring, you know, are there places that God would have us serve or create partnerships with other churches and ministries, and, um, you know, it was really fun to go back. I was raised up in in the Northeast, and uh, so it's a, you know, it's a culture that I'm kind of familiar with. Um, Going into Boston, you know, such an incredible historical city, a lot of, really, you know, the vibrant spiritual life in the United States, it kind of started right in, in that area, Boston was a place of it was a theological center. It was uh, missions sending. um, D.L. Moody came to Christ there in Boston. Uh, All the education, in fact, there's 250,000 students in the greater Boston area. 250,000, and most of the colleges are private and were established in a sense, really, as, as spiritual education institutions. So, whatever a student was studying, they were studying it through this worldview of the Bible. Right and, and biblical uh, ethics and concepts, no matter if it was you know a liberal arts or scientific thing. So that's true of you know it's true of Harvard and Boston College and all these different places. In fact, uh, got a couple pictures for you here. These are these are a couple of the gates going into Harvard, and you notice right at the very top it says Veritas, Truth. That's the theme or the motto rather of Harvard, Truth. Uh, on the left, you see that gate. The inscription is Open ye the gates. That the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. And then on the right it says enter to grow in wisdom. Now on Harvard's campus, currently there's less than 2% Christian. Less than 2%. In the Northeast, it's uh, less than 4% evangelical Christian. And I can vouch for that. Growing up in an Ivy League town, I had zero Christian friends. I knew one Christian kid in my high school? Just imagine that for a moment. One, one Christian kid. I'd had no Christian friends at all in my entire high school. That's normal. And so as we went around, we're talking and exploring, other options, you know, for us to partner? And we came in saying, look, you know, we, we don't know where God would lead, and we want to understand God is moving in your midst, and so we don't want to Trample on anything, but is there is there any way that we could possibly serve with you? And because we, want, in a sense, we want to be invited. We don't want to just kind of rush in. Hey, here we are, right? We're from this you know great place in College Station, Texas, Bible Belt, and you know here to here to help you out. We don't want to, we don't want to come in with that attitude. But what was interesting is every single church planner we met with said, "Come on." So there is so much work to do. In fact, uh, two of the folks that we met with. Within like 30 minutes, I got an email that's like three or four pages long, said, "Hey, you could help us with this and with this and with this and with this." And in particular, you know what they're asking for is not money but people when When I tell them what's what's going on here and the numbers of students that are involved and the number of people that worship with us, their jaws drop and tears come to their eyes. They say, "Would you share?" <laughs> yeah, I guess that we should do that, right?" Uh, because our, our safety and security and comfort and affluence can be a gift if we realize it's been given us to share. And so yeah, can we, can we send people? Can we send financial resources? Can we partner? Can we realize that all that we have and all that we are is a gift from the Lord? So now God is moving in this place. He was moving in the Northeast. That was the center of Christian life for all of America, but now he's moving here. Well, what's our responsibility to give back? to some of these places. See, our, our comfort is it's a trick. It's a trap. We can say, oh, I, I really appreciate the, the praise of the kings of Babylon. And you say, you know, their praise is meaningless because they value things that just don't last. Instead, I can realize this is a moment of blessing for us so that we can share with others who have need. Right? It's a test. There are three tests, in fact, that uh, Hezekiah faces, um, whether it's Comfort and ease or affliction in our bodies or those enemies, the frightening things that appear in our lives. Do we trust the Lord? Now let me give you a couple lessons from Hezekiah's life. The first is this. We will be tested. A uh, prophet's going to knock on your door. Just <laughs> like so he knocks on everybody's door, we'll be tested. Because everyone gets tested. All of God's people are tested. Adam and Eve were tested. Abraham was tested. Did he love his son Isaac more than the Lord? Hezekiah was tested, David was tested, Jesus was tested. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Paul was tested, all the apostles were tested. You will be tested, I will be tested. So Peter says, don't consider it a strange thing. Don't be like, oh my gosh, I'm being tested. Oh, you know, It's not. The fiery ordeal that comes among you is for your testing. So the, the world watches because they're experiencing the same testings fearful things that are entering into their life, physical affliction in their body, times of comfort and ease where they just trust in themselves and they don't realize what life is about. Right? The world around you is being tested in exactly the same way and they watch you and they can see the model of someone who turns to the Lord in those moments. So you will be tested. Second, God alone is worthy of our trust. God alone is worthy of our trust. The reason that these stories are recorded, Paul tells us, is for our instruction. So, our God can turn back the sun. Our God can heal from mortal illness. Uh, Jesus raised the dead. He can crush foreign armies in a single night. He can do all of these things. Will he do those immediately in each of our lives all the time? Nobody can. And we know that ultimately, even our greatest fears are taken care of because he's given us Jesus. So, that's why... You know, we, we face these moments of, of difficulty and they kind of squeeze us toward the Lord and we start praying again because we haven't. We start reading the word again and we get back into fellowship with other believers. But also for us as a church, to say, let's not forget that even in these moments of comfort and relative ease and affluence, we need to be digging deep so that we realize our God is good, our God is strong, we have a short time upon this earth, let's use it for what matters most. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would lean into you when times are good and when times are difficult. I pray that we would not be so foolish to long for the approval of the world, that we would not be so foolish as to believe we can create our own solutions when what's called for is that we just trust you. Father, I thank you that you've proven it in Jesus. If you've given us Jesus, we know, as Paul says, you will freely give us all things Our greatest enemy has been defeated and so we can live these lives uh, moment by moment of deep trust because we've been rescued by you. Father, we do, we proclaim again that we love you, that we believe in you, that we trust in your goodness and power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Uh, Don't forget, next Sunday is Church Picnic and we'll see you June 3rd.